Welcome to Gu Dao Jingxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into Taoism and ancient texts to uncover their timeless wisdom and discuss how we can apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, a practicing psychotherapist, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach David Wong. Good morning, David. Good morning, Ian. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I know this week it's it's episode fifty, and and because people like big round numbers, I'm just going to say happy fiftieth episode to us. Yeah, yeah, it's a key milestone here. Yeah, it took a lot of time to to get here. Since we we release every other week, this is basically two years worth of effort for us, and we're pretty much right on right on schedule with bi-weekly um, podcasts and and two years in, here we are. Yep. So today we're going to talk about status, which comes from chapter three or of, of Tao Te Ching. We're, we're focusing in on this idea of status, which chapter three starts off, Lao Tzu writes, so basically, he's talking about not esteeming status so that people don't compete. It's been a little while since we talked about this this chapter, but since we're going to focus on this idea of status in today's episode, would you mind telling us a little bit more, just really zooming in on how you how you think? Lao Tzu might be conceptualizing Xi'an or, or status and what his approach to this word, word is. Well, uh, if we think about the time uh, Lao Tzu lived, uh, it was a, you know, a time of upheavals and change. Uh, of course, you know, during that, those times, the status of people also change. You know, some of the people, the old aristocrats, uh, they um, they lost their status, and there's some uh, emerging uh, the people who uh, you know have more technology, like chariots and uh, weapons, and you know wealth. Uh, they're in the rising in status. Um, I think during that time, uh, because he lived about the time when Confucius lived, I think there's um, also the emphasis on different things. Like the Confucians, they emphasize, you know, uh, take, you know, having the capable people in the government. So they put a higher esteem to, you know, people who are virtuous and uh, capable, uh, but. There's a debate at that time. Uh, the Taoist thinkers like Lao Tzu, they see some unintended consequences for giving too much of an emphasis on the able and competent and, you know, the smart people. What were some of those unintended consequences? What do you think Lao Tzu saw regarding status while he felt, hey, we need to be careful about this? Well, the tendency of, you know, people gaming the system, sometimes they are not that capable, but they can pretend 
to be capable. And then people all, you know, jockeying for power, which, you know, produce a lot of competition, conflicts and wars. So those are just some of those. And uh, uh, that makes all these things can make society very disorderly and violent. Well, it's interesting just what you're painting a picture of just because there's obviously within the human heart, these desires can be very powerful and strong. And so whatever society values, the human heart can can twist that up or or it can twist up the human heart even more. And so and what you're talking about is that when you make something like, you know, the Confucian values of passing the civil service exam and uh, you know, passing that exam, you're not necessarily creating the intentions that you wish that people will find a way to game that system and it can create sort of per- perverse consequences in society. Yeah, yeah, because in order to pass those exams, you have to, you know, spend a lot of uh, years studying the classics. And um, but those there are people who are, you know, who are, let's say they're very good at, you know, reciting poetry and classics, but their, you know, administration skills or management skills when they get into the government may not you know, they they may not be just capable of handling the practical affairs, for example. Well, so, so, and, and this test, is this something, is this a test that's still given in China? This, the, like the Confucian based civil service exam? Uh, Nowadays is the, uh, the equivalent of that is probably the college entrance exams. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And, um, I think for a lot of people, especially the poor families, it's a way to get into universities in China. Uh, and then, uh, you know, from there, uh, they may end up uh, working for the government or for the for companies. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of because that exam is so rigorous, it requires lots of concentration, you know, studying hard that uh, some of the kids of the rich families, they just kind of bypass them and mm-hmm. uh, are you know, choosing another path of coming to overseas to study, like to study in the uh, universities because that system is so rigid. But people mm-hmm. wanted debated whether they should get rid of this system. And a lot of people were opposing getting rid of that system despite the rigidity of it, because it gives, you know, certain people of, uh, you know, of less resources, uh, a pathway, you know, some kind of upward mobility. I mean, it almost has a little bit of a Hunger Games, the, the, the novel and the, the, the movie about, you know, setting up, people where if, if you're wealthy, you're fine. You can, you can get out of this system. You can find a different path 
but if you're poor, you have to sort of be at the, the cream of the crop. You can pass this exam, you can get into school, but it has this, I mean, kind of, um, highly competitive. I'm sure it's a, I mean, how difficult is this exam? Uh, I, I think it's a very it's it's a lot of because a lot of people um, it's it's very difficult. I mean it's uh you have to you have to really um, sacrifice a lot like playing and uh, mm. I remember I personally I took that exam uh, mm. when I was a kid. Uh, I think you have to really like stay very focused. Has it changed? Do you imagine it's changed a lot? I mean, I know you might not know how the exact exam goes now, but is it pretty similar? Uh, I think the basic structure of the exams remain mm-hmm. similar. Yeah. And you, you coach a lot of students, so they're they're ones who are taking this test or preparing nope. for this? They are the ones who are actually taking, let's say, SAT and uh, write okay. college essays and uh, go through the path of the the college admissions uh, of the U.S. American universities. Okay, and so in in China, the test is much more difficult than the SATs. I think it's a different kind of difficulty. Uh, You can see, uh, you know, students, um, students who are going through the overseas studying path, they have to understand how the American system works. Mm. Uh, and uh, let's say they have to write essays and uh, mm-hmm. they, they have to take SATs. And mm-hmm. of course, uh, you know, in order to uh, get through this, there's the whole industry that supports them. And then mm. there's the money there. And so re- regardless, we can kind of see, y- you've got to spend a lot of time and, and resources regardless of which path you're taking. And, and all this is, um, in the service of hopefully making a, a, a better life. And obviously in society, whether it's the U S or, or China, higher status means a higher, hopefully a, an easier life a, a better quality of life. And so, you know, a big part of, of this exam is to attain that. Right. Uh, you can only say hopefully because there is the unpredictable aspect of it. And and what is that unpredictable? What what do you see the results of that un- unpredictability? Well, for example, even if you pass through the, let's say, the domestic, the Chinese entrance exams, and some of the poor kids, when they go to the university in Shanghai or in Beijing, like say Tsinghua University or Beijing University, they still, they need to learn how to socialize. Uh, Mm. They cannot uh, be, uh, they can get good good grades, which are in their favor. But when it comes to looking for jobs, when they graduate, uh, they still rely, you know, on, their interpersonal and communication skills, uh, and and also relationships uh, to navigate that system to get a good job. And sometimes they, some people don't, because you can end up with a students who are really 
you know, get good grades, but because of their, you know, family didn't give them the exposure uh, to handle sophisticated or complex uh, relationships, they may mm. not communicate that well, for example. So they're still at a disadvantage. Kind of the people who stereotypically in the U.S. we would say like people who they they have a really smart brain, but you kind of put them in the basement somewhere to do their work where they don't have to interact with people. Right, right. Uh, certain things like that. And also in order to get a certain kind of job, you, you have to know how to network and socialize, you know, talked about certain things that, mm-hmm. you know, people whose family are rich and who have, you know, enjoy a, a variety of, uh, you know, city life or even families who can afford to go over to go on vacation, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. abroad, uh, who know certain topics. Let's say the uh, poor kids from the countryside, they may not have, you know, access to those opportunities. Yeah, I, w- I was one of those poor kids from the country. I tell people I I learned all of my social skills after. Definitely after the age of 30, maybe the age yeah, of 35. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. yeah. I think in the, uh, I think the similar case I can think of is uh, in the U.S. university, what they call the first generation, uh, you know, college kids. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, even though the aspiration of American university is to, uh, you know, have that diversity, but the truth of the matter is it is still like, a society at large, uh, you know, certain people hang out with certain people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, it, it does get split that way. And, and if you are social, like that, that splitting of socialization that obviously the haves socialize with the haves. And so they kind of stay in their place and the have nots socialize with the have nots. And so they kind of stay in their place. Now, how would you, so I want to understand more about status and how that works in China, just because I think most of our listeners understand um, probably more of how that works in a, in a Western way. But, um, but China was unique in that, you know, there's the cultural revolution, which put, turned status upside down can can we spend a little bit of time and kind of walk through the best of your understanding maybe what status was like and who had status let's say you know the immediate years leading up to the cultural revolution as best as you understand and then walk through how status changed in China the years during the Cultural Revolution and maybe, you know, until Deng Xiaoping and then how status has changed, you know, the the past 10 years in China, just sort of like a, a brief history of status the past, you know, 75 years, 75 to 100 years in China. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I would say I would make a broad statement or observation. I think Chinese people are a bunch of very status conscious people, just Mm. by its own culture and tradition. Mm. Um, You know, in 
you know, the throughout the let's say thousands of years, I mean, the Taoism is more the exception. You know, it's predominantly a Confucian culture which uh, values you know hierarchical order, uh, and even like believe that hierarchical order is a way to uh, you know to bring peace and harmony because uh, then people don't mm-hmm. necessarily are restless in competing for things. Uh, I mean, there, there is some truth to that. I mean, it, it, it takes what inherently is unpredictable and uncertain, all these human relationships. And it just, it gives you a formula. Like, you know how to respond now in, in every situation with Confucianism. Yes. Yeah. For example, like the, uh, in the traditional society, even you know the color, the patterns and materials of clothing, let's say somebody wear, have certain etiquettes that, for example, the imperial yellow, you cannot wear yellow, only the emperor uh, you know deserves quick way color. to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like symbols like so that is a perfect nowadays we have brands, right? We have LV, mm-hmm. yeah. we have you know all, all these brands. Uh, but in those days, uh, those are the status symbols, you know, how how large your house should be. You know, there are like mm-hmm. all these, you know, specifications uh, that mm-hmm. uh, send a signal, you know, where you are in the uh, in the society. So that's pretty much, you know, throughout thousands of years, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's like embedded in people's psyche. You know, they care a lot about where they stand in the society. And there's even a word called face. You know, face is really... Mianzi. Mian, mianzi. Yeah, mianzi. Like to lose face or save face, somebody's face, that's critical. I mean, that's critical, you know, to anyone living in Chinese society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that still is true. I think it's... Yeah, it still is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So that's the kind of the long time you know tradition uh and then you know back to your question in recent years i would say before the chinese communist took over in 1949 you know that society under nationalist party Kuomintang, like chiang kai-shek you know there are some introduction of western values you know try mm. to flatten the society a little bit mm-hmm. because it's believed at that time, uh, during that time, uh, the reason China f- fell behind was because that, you know, hierarchical value. And the, a lot of scholars mm-hmm. study the West, enlightenment and democratic values, they believe that's the catalyst, you know, to, for the progress in the West at that, at that time. Yeah, the, and Chiang Kai-shek, he was Christian too, right? He was Christian, yeah. And uh, his wife studied at Wellesley. You know, Madam Chiang Kai-shek uh, uh, studied at Wellesley. You know, one of the women's uh, prestigious women's college. Yeah. And just uh, for people that might not be familiar with him, he he was the leader of the the other party vying for control of China at the same time as the cultural revolution, he, his faction did not win. They ended up in 
Taiwan, and that's basically the Taiwanese people are right. Uh, he fled to Taiwan before, way before Cultural Revolution, like in 1949. Basically, yeah. uh, he was a student of Doctor Sun Yat-sen. Doctor Sun Yat-sen was the the one uh, who, uh, with uh, you know, uh, the Republic Revolution, who overthrew the older dynasties. The last one is the mm-hmm. Qing Dynasty. Yeah, and uh, and that had become very very um kind of um decadent and had kind of the empire had kind of gone into disrepair at that point right 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 uh, despite all the trying i think they sent delegations to uh london to europe to study uh the british you know monarchy and and all the the western systems but it was beyond repair i think it was just uh, it's, uh, it's it's a very hard time. It had a very hard time to embrace modernity at that time. So uh, there was the mm-hmm. revolution. Then there was the revolution to overthrow overthrow mm-hmm. that system by Doctor Sun Yat-sen, and then uh, Doctor Sun Yat-sen was very idealistic a person. You know, he envisioned a China with you know more equality and democracy, and then to get rid of the order. Uh, Western powers in China at that time, but he wasn't mm-hmm. able to succeed. So then, after a while, he um, there was all kind of warlords fighting with each other, and then uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek took, uh, you know, got uh, consolidated all the power and become number one. Mm. And a, a, stat, a system of status under under him, what do you imagine, what would status have looked like? It's a combination of the traditional, because the traditional values and status consciousness is always there, but then mm-hmm. with the uh, some of the Western values. Okay. It was a tra- merit, very merit. important transitional time for uh, during, uh, you know, for China during that time. But the, when the Chinese uh, communists took over, I think the ideology, ideology changed. Uh, there was an attempt to make China a more egalitarian society. So really trying to remove status as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. For example, like between men and women, you know, there's a you know, slogan at that time that women can hold half of the sky, you know, basically to say women have more power. Uh, in the Chinese society. And then the working class, like the peasants and workers, uh, you know, are supposed to be the owner of the, of the, of the state. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of classic, um, when the people own the means of production. Yeah, yeah. That's what kind of changes things. And so that was the whole idea there too, is that there, there shouldn't be an ownership class. Everybody owns the means of production. Yeah, and we were told we are all the owners of our country. So people have that sense and were motivated uh, during that time, you know, from a geopolitical aspect. uh, I think especially uh, in the early 60s, uh, when China separated with the former Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. uh, it's really like the, you know, People were 
uh, mobilize and and be proud to be self reliant at that time. Uh, and 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 how how was that during that period? How I mean, what was status like? Like how how did status? How did it actually uh, show up in Chinese society that period of time? You know, post cultural revolution, those you know, sixties, late fifties to late. To... I think that at that time is uh, along the line of political and the ideological. In other words, like say, if you are a, a soldier or a government official. Or if your family background are from the peasants' background or working class background, you enjoy a higher status than, let's say, you know, your family had a, at one point a, you know, before 1969, you know, the uh, capitalist background. Let's say your, mm -hmm. your, you know, your grandparents were entrepreneurs before 1949. Mm -hmm. If you, you were that, you are at the at, at, Actually, you're supposed to be, you know, you know, very self-critical and uh, be ashamed of that background. Well, was, there is a word I don't know the Chinese word, but it was something like capitalist rotor. Yes, like that. yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So that was during that time. It's almost the the upside down, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, but that didn't last. Uh, because that system, in some way, <clears throat> created um, a new equality. You know, the uh, or I should say, the the desire to create an egalitarian society end up being like nobody's, you know, is motivated to work hard. So that's uh, mm -hmm. there's a, a metaphor of uh, you know big. Rice, iron rice bowl. So everybody eats yeah. from the big iron rice bowl without contributing to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, together with the Cultural Revolution, actually Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, people say, oh, it was, you know, Mao who tried to manipulate the younger people to do that. Actually, there was a bottom-up uh, forces. During that mm -hmm. time, young people or people at the lower level of the society, they started to see the bureaucracy, the, the prestige, uh, you know, given to, let's say, people in the government, let's say the sons and daughters of, you know, the cadres in that system. So uh, when Mao tried to say, oh, you should attack those people, and then people did because they feel, you know, they are the ones who, who held the power? Yeah. So when when so status kind of got turned upside down. People with low status now have higher status, and people who had higher status have lower. Yep. There was sort of this grassroots effort to make that happen, and and then when Mao kind of gave it his blessing, then it really took took off. Yeah. 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 I mean, in some subtle way, it's similar to uh, what Trump is doing. You know, that's of what course, it's sound, a different that's exactly system. What I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, it's like it gave voice to the people, let's say, who are not part of the government hierarchy. Uh, mm -hmm. Give the younger people a, a voice to say you can overthrow them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's the, the the phrase he's used a couple times now? Stand stand back and stand by. Yeah, yeah. Kind of letting people know. Yeah, I'm I'm going to give you the word, and when I give you the word, you're take action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mao always had a, a very idealistic or utopian vision of what he called a new man, new socialist man, who was, you know, who were free from the capitalistic influences, you know, who are kind of very self selfless. And um, yeah, but in in a society or in, I mean, I would say status is part of the human nature. So if you want to eliminate it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you may end up in a worse system. Yeah, that there's, it's, it's on the other end of the spectrum, you have Gordon Gecko's character in Wall Street who says greed is good. And of course, what he means by that is it's the opposite of that giant rice bowl where when there's the giant rice bowl and everybody's eating out of it, but no one's motivated to to put to do any of the work to put in more rice. Exactly. Yeah. But when there's greed, which greed is in the human heart, and if people are pursuing hard work to try to get that higher status, then of course the the rice bowl is getting filled, which is what Gordon Gecko's character is kind of getting at. What changed in China? Because obviously the China of 2022 is vastly different than China of 1969. Yeah. Well, the end of the Cultural Revolution and then with the reform and opening to the outside world, immediately, let's say, uh, I remember because I was, you know, I was a kid at that time. I remember that the families who have overseas relations, let's say, mm. you know, aunts and uncles who, you know, maybe before the, during the 50s, they got a chance to go through Hong Kong to America. Those people enjoy status. I remember the, through, mm. you know, their visiting, they started to come back to China to visit, uh, you know, their relatives. They bring all the different appliances, elect- mm. electronic gadget- gadgets. So those people start to enjoy a higher status. Uh, while in the well, past, I- in the Cultural Revolution, these are people who, uh, you know, may afraid that the government will see them as a spies. Mm. So uh, Hua Chiao. Hua Chiao, yep, yep. And so then, that, those people yeah. who lived over. Yeah. And then, you know, with the uh, reform ongoing, more and more people who are doing the foreign trades who they who are the entrepreneurs, then they become, you know, esteemed in the Chinese society. OK, the, the, the people who are, you know, economically, they have more more stuff, uh, you know, as in the past who are like ideologically or politically. Uh, who enjoy a higher status. I mean, it does seem like people kind of like economic freedom. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole whole thing because the um, 
Because it's uh, first of all, it's directly related to your standard of living. You know, you、mm. can see whose families at that time who have, you know, who first have like TV sets, who first、mm. had washing machines.、Mm. I mean, these are very visible、uh, during that time. So it's it's like pe- people who have been poor their whole lives, and there's that period of time where. Yeah, they're poor, but the previously rich people maybe they're poor too. It doesn't seem like people like that as much as being poor, but having the possibility of like, oh, well, I've got some rich family members, and they can bring stuff from overseas, and and maybe someday I I will be able to start a business and yeah have more money. Pe- yeah, people people like that economic freedom, even if they were still poor. Uh yeah 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 yeah, and then、uh, fast forward I think during the recent、uh, decades, uh you know the the billionaires the 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 celebrities uh、mm-hmm. I think it's more and more like globally you know people talk、mm-hmm. about global elites, uh、yeah. it's a bunch of people who uh from what they The car they drive, the clothes they wear, the luxury goods they they have access to,、uh, the vacation they take, the schools they go to,、uh, these are becoming almost like、uh, common global standards that people up,、mm-hmm. look up to. Yeah, so the the sort of the neoliberalism of global open markets, global free markets. China is on board now with that. They've been on board with it for a long time, and so status has also changed. Where, similarly, you know, you've walked us through this history of, you know, it used to be very much about the、um, the air the air kind of aristocracy to、yep. you know, the the communist version of status, which is that this upside down version where. The poor, and it's kind of like the the oppression Olympics, where whoever used to be the most oppressed now has the highest status, and whoever used to have the highest status is now the most lowly. And then it shifted to this global free market status, where you know if you can get celebrity status through some means, it doesn't really matter how, but being Being rich and famous—that that is where status is is positioned these days. Yeah, I remember there's another class of people、um, in the '90s who worked for、mm-hmm. the、uh, multinational corporations because a lot of the like the Motorola, you know, Microsoft, they all have you know operating、uh, they they all have operations in China. So let's say、mm-hmm. you work for one of these companies. Uh, these professionals,、uh, you know, were uh, thought thought uh, were esteemed, but nowadays, with you know a lot of business, you know,、uh, leaving uh, China because of、mm. the you know political forces, these、mm. people and and also the multinational companies, their kind of deep emphasis on investing too much in China. 
these people start to lose their status, but they because of their skills, so they start to find, you know, high paying jobs in Chinese private companies. Hmm. So that's okay. another interesting change. And so we we can see how fluid yeah. status is e- even in China, where in a century, you know, in the early 1900s would have still been aristocratic, and then we moved into communist status, and now much more, even though there's still a one-party system in China, global elite status a- applies in China the same as, as it does anywhere else. So n- now let's contrast that with Lao Tzu when Lao Tzu says, you know, don't esteem status or xian. Um, how would you how would you even begin to start doing something like what Lao Tzu says in the midst of this global celebrity wealth status driving everything? One, what 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 do you think Lao Tzu would say about how status is being used in our our societies today? And what do you think he he would say about it and what needs to change? Uh, in my view, it's pretty tough. Uh, it's tough because uh, there already that status, you know, that we see today have already full established. It's yeah. it's part. It's it, it it's everywhere. It's driving yeah. behaviors. Uh, you know, there are efforts, maybe partial efforts, to make changes. But I, I've seen that, you know, it's already integral part of the system. Sometimes I was wondering whether it takes more dramatic outside events uh, to pull this whole system down, mm-hmm. uh, to rebuild the status. Mm-hmm. If you want to do the gradual change, I find it, I just find it hard. Mm-hmm. There, there. It's clear that around the world now, whether it's aspiring mm-hmm. rappers or um, enter, entertainers, con- content creators, um, everybody in the popular culture around the world, mm-hmm. it's so embedded in their way of thinking how could you possibly get people to think differently about what their what their aspirations are that status this kind of status is so programmed now around the world that doesn't seem like you could steer that ship a different direction yeah yeah it seems to me is is it's what kind it's not whether status or not it's what status uh, oh, you know, throughout human history, you know, I could imagine early on when, you know, warriors, you know, they mm-hmm. enjoy a higher status, right? At some at yeah. some point, when there were wars, they're just fighting for resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, you know, we relatively we lived in a uh, in an, an era like say, you know, enter entertainment. You know, I yeah. think in the Chinese society. Uh, 
especially to those government officials, like in the imperial court, they always look down upon certain people, let's say merchants. Mm. Uh, they even they enjoy a lower status uh, in many ways uh, than the, the farmers because agriculture, you know, was mm -hmm. uh, emphasized. Important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the same thing with the people, the artists. Nowadays, look at the artists and you know, the people who, let's say, playing, uh, who play sports. But in the eyes, let's say, in the old, uh, you know, aristocracy, those people are just like with the little tiny uh, skills. You know, they are, you know, they are just, you know, for the fun, they are for the enjoyment of an opera. So they enjoy uh, very, very, no matter how skillful, how talented they are, they're just like, you know, lower Low. level people. But look at the celebrities, you know, the, the, the you know, nowadays. Well, and I think, it, so I think what we're learning is then that there's a relationship between status and the condition of a society. Yeah. And... And that in our society, like, so then you start questioning, well, what would it say about a society where entertainers have such high status? And you would have to think, well, you know, here's a, a society of people who must be really bored and yeah. life must be very privileged uh -huh. and easy where whoever can entertain people the most, that's who has the highest status. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you think about it, so what is status? Status is the value that other people accord to you, right? That's yeah. pretty much. Mm -hmm. So from what you're saying is we must be living in a very boring or mm -hmm. feel like, you know, meaningless society that exactly. we, desire, we derive meaning from these people who can deliver those goods or services who, who can distract us the most yeah 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 but this wouldn't change until we human species face you know hardship hardships mm -hmm. and during that hardship maybe the essential workers the people who can provide the 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 most valuable role in helping us survive, they will eventually hold the most value, I think, despite the market. Right now, the market, you know, everything, the value der derives from it, right? The financial services. Let's say at one point, if we are, this whole thing is down, I don't know whether these people still, because they, they also face survival. Yeah, when when you're just facing survival and there's no such thing as a stock market, the 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 status that a stockbroker would have or a day trader, it no longer means anything. That's I what I would thought. Yeah, the, you know, there's no there's no um, digital system to mm -hmm. manipulate, and it's just the reality of people have to survive, then status is going to change quickly on, on who, who has it and who doesn't. Right. So nature, I would say the nature is probably the, the ultimate leveler mm -hmm. or the, the changer of status.
what status means. Yeah. And and so if if nature change so if nature changed, you know, let's say that that things change in society rapidly, which it seems like they are. It seems like mm-hmm. the world is the global situation. It seems like we're heading toward. I mean, I might just be being pessimistic, but just what it looks like is that in the next few years, we're going to head into what something we probably haven't experienced, which is a global depression. We talk about the depression of Mm -hmm. the United States, but now that everything is so globalized and interconnected Mm -hmm. and they, you can see with the, the interest rates and inflation and lots of people within, you know, those higher finance industry positions are saying, yeah, it does look like there's going to be a global recession, if not a global depression. How do you think that might change status in, in places like the U.S. and, and China? Um, that's a great question. I think still the people who have the skills or resources that maximize survival mm-hmm. will uh, have a higher status. Mm-hmm. But the questions, the question is, you know, what are resources and skills mm-hmm. in that changing landscape, right? Yeah, are well. essential to our survival. You know, we, we, we just said a minute ago that if the financial markets collapse, like not functioning anymore, then the mm-hmm. value of those people engaging it, you know, I would imagine their status will come down but of mm-hmm. course, you know, if they accumulated a lot of the, you know, other things, uh, including material possessions, they convert their wealth into those things, they still have, you know, good cushion mm-hmm. uh, to protect themselves against mm-hmm. certain disasters. So from that perspective, they still enjoy higher status. So people with with real goods, people with real goods and not just, you know, digital. Right, 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 right. Real goods means like their shelter, right? Their property, Mm -hmm. right? The Mm -hmm. real stuff. Um, I don't know how they will get food, something like, they, mm-hmm. Nowadays, every one of us depend on the, the food supply system. Mm-hmm. But they maybe they have they are better, you know, those things, they have a better access to it. If they do, then that's they enjoy a higher status. And and so if we were applying Lao Tzu's mm-hmm. admonition to, 
you know, don't, don't esteem status. Don't, don't give extra value to status. What might that look like in, let's say, a, a, a global depression? My question is the, the advice that Lao Tzu gave to, you know, so that advice give a don't when you say don't. Are we assuming that the people who can decide, who can choose, you know, mm -hmm. not to, are the ones who control the power? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question is kind of who, who are the leaders of this society? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if those leaders continue to have influence and control, uh, you know, important resources, they, I think these, even these leaders, based on their judgment of the survival dynamics, uh, they'd better be more fluid in terms of what to emphasize, what not to emphasize. The, the 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 example I can give you is you know as a executive coach for example, uh, in corporations it's interesting that sometimes everyone is pressured to deliver right to perform to mm -hmm. make meet the numbers. Yeah. Uh, so leaders always debate whether to incentivize individuals for high performance because it's very motivating. It creates that competitive dynamic, mm -hmm. you know, among people. But sometimes they overdo it, so it um, it actually diminished or undermined the co cooperation among individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they realize it, so they have to pull back, you know, individual-based, uh, you know, performance measures so that people can work together. So mm -hmm. using that analogy, I would imagine in a very fluid, constantly changing environment let's say those leaders who in the past may esteem say this is important to signal to people so everyone is like moving in that direction needs to constantly recalibrate and judge in order to meet that survival goal mm. so from that perspective you know just exactly as Lao Tzu said you cannot too dogmatic about a certain criteria because if you're too dogmatic about it, not psychologically, you know, flexible about it, you know, you you may end up in a in a, in in a in a suicide situation. I mean, it's a great insight, which is that Lao Tzu very well might have said something different at a different time, but essentially, what does align with Taoist thought is that idea of being flexible that whatever metrics for status that you create, it needs to be flexible and it needs to adapt to whatever the needs of the people are. Yeah, go with the flow of Tao, serve a purpose. Uh, you know, Lao Tzu in, in that statement didn't say, you know, I can almost see the other side, uh, which is to overemphasize uh, egalitarianism. So mm -hmm. this side is, overemphasize the meritocracy, like whoever is capable, right? So mm -hmm. if you overemphasize um, competencies, you may end up with a situation like people compete, jockeying for power and competing with each mm -hmm. other. 
but let's say you know during the you know as I said earlier, like during the uh, the early years of uh, Mao, uh, you know there's overemphasis of egalitarianism, and in this country there's also overemphasis on equality, everybody equal. You know, like the a lot of the leftist idealism. So that's the same dynamics. Like, like, you know, no matter if you emphasize it, you are meddled with a, a certain natural order and dynamics. You end up with unintended consequences. So that's yeah, going to be interesting. That's yeah. the real, I think, the real learning of of Laozi in here. I think. Yeah, and so that. Being aware of unintended consequences, being aware that, you know, whatever, when you start meddling with status, be prepared for things not to go the way that you expect them to. Exactly. That's, I think that's, that's a good way of saying it. Well, I, I know we didn't prep for, for this, but it does make me think as we're talking about this, just because in modern culture in the U.S. I don't know if it's spreading outside of the U.S. yet, mm -hmm. but in corporations all over the U.S. now, there's the um, diversity, equity, and inclusion departments that are becoming a new department within mm -hmm. corporations, which obviously directly relates to status and is changing the nature of status within corporations, it's it's probably too soon to tell, but just as a thought experiment, how do you think, you know, changing status or introducing these departments as kind of a standard within corporations might, what might be some of the unintended consequences? Well, the unintended consequences might be People earn, people didn't feel they have to earn through their hard work of the mm -hmm. respect from their colleagues. Uh, they just take advantage of this initiative and get to that point. And other people who see that, you know, may find ways to oppose this other ways, even though they may not say anything, you know, because of a fear of being politically incorrect. But I'm sure by human nature, there's just so many ways of trying to sabotage that system because that system, uh, when it's taking so far too far, mm -hmm. it has its own building justice. The intent was to correct the past justice, mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. the, the whole argument of this initiative, mm -hmm. because, you know, certain races, certain genders were discriminated against. There's a system mm -hmm. that consciously or unconsciously, like, are uh, discriminating. So this whole initiative is meant to correct, but you have to be very careful whether you are overcorrecting. And also mm -hmm. you have to watch in that process, exactly, does that meet its goal or are we going too far? And certain people that you're impacting, you know, they suffer in, uh, the, the reverse mm -hmm. injustice. All mm -hmm. these things, 
need to be like a DAO, you know, people in accordance of DAO needs to be on watch, just on that. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense that there there's probably some corporations that will do diversity, equity, and inclusion mm-hmm. a certain way and will find success. Like I'm guessing, you know, how you position it, how you get buy-in, who are the stakeholders that you pull in, how do you integrate it with the company, like how you go about doing that is going to have a huge impact on does it actually help the people that you're trying to help or do you actually just create sort of this giant disaster of um, even more conflict than before? You don't know for sure. I think that's why you have to be uh, discerning and uh, looking all the time. Because let's say if you don't do it, then maybe you lose something because there's a whole this whole social wave on that, right? If you are lagging behind, maybe the customers will vote with their feet and not to buy your stuff. So you do want to be pragmatic and say, you know, we we, we want to look at these things. But again, uh, you have to monitor the impact of it so that maybe, you know, you are on that bandwagon, but then other consequences. So it's all it's all very dynamic. You just cannot be dogmatic about it and rigid about it and and, and firmly believe, you know, this, this thing is like the holy grail or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the dangerous part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're running out of time, but just to summarize, it sounds like what what I've learned from our discussion is that status is it's necessary in society. You yeah, can't it's everywhere. It's 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 separate. part of us. It's part of our identity. You know, it's a uh, it can serve as a uh, you know a human uh, you know motivator. And so, if if there's sage like leaders, leaders who understand the role of status and how it how you create it, how you position it. It has to be done in a way that reflects what society needs at the time. Sometimes it can mean, you know, shifting status from one group of people to another. Yep. Yep. Sometimes it can be about, you know, trying to just diminish as much status as possible. Sometimes it can be really esteeming one particular part of society where, like you were saying, in times warriors were more esteemed or the farmers were more esteemed, but essentially using status in a flexible way to help lead society into whatever the next kind of place that they need to arrive, it's essential. And so, yeah, it's like water, right? It's a flow, like flowing, like water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those leaders need to, behave like that, I would even argue like for individuals, we need to do similar things. Let's say, you know, status can be a lot of things, right? So we can't put all all eggs in one basket and say, mm. oh, you know, I'm just striving for that status. If I don't mm. if I don't get it, then I will be devastated devastated. Uh, I think 
you know, just through our day, you know, since, you know, we're status driven, you know, animal, then you have to think, you know, maybe certain you gain status through your knowledge, your insights, and maybe in the next moment you gain status through being a nice and helpful person. Or then the other one is, you know, you create value, monetary value uh, through a, a business venture. So all that together, I think today, I think people are anxious and obsessive about status value is I see either, you know, people are trying to deny it and say, oh, you know, status is so, so superficial thing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I have nothing to do with it. You know, I have independent thinking. You know, I don't need mm -hmm. a, I don't, you know, I'm not subject to the pool of this gravity thing. But mm -hmm. the other thing, or people are so obsessed, you know, obsessive with it and just like one thing, like a wealth mm -hmm. or influence, you can actually gain the, you know, uh, gain status by being helpful to other people. So mm -hmm. to have a more more intentional about it and not against it, but not like myopic about it. I think that is the more Taoist approach. Yeah, I really like that. And I, and I really like thinking about when you were talking about status on an individual level, I think we have this word self self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. And really, I think it describes how we convey status toward ourselves. If we say like, I'm a good, I feel like I'm a good person or I feel like I'm a bad person or everything in between. Yeah. Self-esteem is really like, well, what's our criteria for how we give status to ourselves? And I think that's a great point that you make, which is that we have to decide what that is or else we're not going to feel good about ourselves because we're going to be led around by external forces, advertisements on the TV, um, all the things playing into our insecurities. And so our self-esteem is going to come from, well, what, what criteria have, have I made for myself on what status I'm going to bestow upon myself? Good person, bad person, um, so we should think about that. Yeah, build our own point system. You know, maybe there are some overlaps with others, I'm sure, right? There are certain uh, basic, let's say, standard of living, you know, basic financial security, you know, we share with other people. Uh, beyond that, I think it's us for us to make our own playlist of our, mm -hmm. our point system, right? Our, our mm -hmm. you know, values, and um, yeah, that's how we navigate. Yeah, and I think that's where the Lao Tzu giving us the three treasures for a, a, a Taoist, we can kind of evaluate ourselves on that level of you know, was I was I kind? Mm -hmm. Am I am I being moderate? Am I putting myself um, after others? And a status driven upon that, I think at the end of the day, if we're doing that, we probably can feel pretty good about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, David, I appreciate our discussion today and 
I hope that this week and while you're walking the timeless way that some of our conversation has been of help and also to our listeners. And we hope that you will join us next time for episode 51 of Walking the Timeless Way.